thanks for tuning in this week to Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church plant located in the Pasadena area. It is our mission to save the lost, to equip the saved, to serve both the lost and the saved, and finally to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting from the beginning of a book and working our way through all the way till the end. It is our prayer that you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ through his word. Well, so far in the book of Acts, we've noted that Satan has tried different ways to destroy the church. He first started by trying to destroy the church from outside uh, with persecution from the religious leaders, but that didn't work. And so then he decided by uh, trying to work within the church, using corruption within the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And he was successful with them, but God dealt with them very quickly so that there wasn't uh, ramifications to the church. And uh, then Satan tries once again to destroy the church from the outside using persecution. All the uh, apostles are arrested and they're beaten and they're told never to teach or preach in the name of Jesus again. But we're told at the end of chapter 5 of Acts that daily in the temple in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so once again, Satan's attempts to try to destroy the work of God, to try to destroy what God was doing in the early church are thwarted. Uh, but as I noted when we started this, just because he fails once does not mean he's going to stop attacking. He'll continue to come in different ways and in different types of attacks. And this morning, we're going to see him once again try to destroy the church from within. He's going to try to divide and conquer. He's going to try to get one group of believers against another group of believers in order to bring this uh, problem within the church. You know, last week, a couple of us went and watched the new Captain America movie. And, you know, something I found interesting was the villain in that movie recognized, you know what, we can't, I can't uh, defeat, you know, the Avengers. But one thing I know I can do is if I can get them to fight against one another, they'll destroy themselves. So I won't have to destroy them. And that's something that Satan does. Sometimes he attacks from the outside. He attacks in different ways. But he recognizes, you know what, if I can get believers to come against each other, if I can get believers to attack each other, they'll destroy themselves from within, and he's very successful, unfortunately, within the body of Christ of doing that. And that is something we're going to see this morning that he's going to attempt to uh, promote and do, and we'll see how that goes. But, you know, when I was in Bible college, I did a lot of landscaping to help pay my tuition there. And, and I actually like most of the landscaping work. I like mowing, I like blowing, I like edging. But the thing that I did not like was getting on my knees and pulling weeds. Uh, that was the thing I said, you you know what, let's just leave that alone. But I learned quickly that if you neglect the pulling of the weeds or you don't pull the, uh, the weeds, you know, they grow and they spread very quickly. Uh, and the reason I bring that up is because as a pastor, I've discovered that when there's problems between Christians in the church, that problem's like a weed. Oftentimes, we don't want to address it. We don't want to deal with it. We want to neglect it. We wanted to say, you know what, hopefully it'll just go away on its own. But the reality is all it does is just grow and spread. And so if we don't deal with it, if we don't take care of it, the problem just gets worse. And when that happens, Satan's there to divide and conquer. When there's issues that aren't dealt with properly, he's there to try to wreak havoc on the church. Well, here at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, we're going to see one group in the early church has a complaint against another group. And if this problem wasn't dealt with properly, wisely, quickly, and lovingly, Satan would have really brought some huge problems within the church. But, you know, 
Fortunately, they do deal with this quickly. They do deal with this wisely and lovingly. And we're going to see a great example of how to deal with conflict and complaints and problems when we have them in the church. You see, something important for us to recognize is there's always going to be problems in the church. There's always going to be needs in the church. There's always going to be complaints because the reality is the church is made up of a bunch of sinful people. And so there's going to be things that we do towards one another, either intentionally or unintentionally, that cause hurt, that cause problems. That's just a reality of being in the church. If you're recently saved and you thought, you know what, I'm going to be in the church and everyone's just going to be perfect and loving, and there's not going to be any issues, you've probably already realized that's not the case. The reality is those things are going to happen. So the question now now is, how are you going to respond when you see a problem, when you have a complaint, when you see a need? How are you going to respond to that? Because they're there. You're going to see them. You're going to be a part of them. But the question is, how are you going to respond to it? Because the reality is there is a biblical and godly way to respond when you see problems, when you see needs, when you see complaints. And there's an unbiblical and ungodly way to respond when you see problems and needs and have complaints. And when you bring your problems or your needs or your complaints to the leadership in the church, as we will see that happens here in Acts chapter 6, the leadership in the church also can either respond godly and biblically or ungodly and unbiblically. And so they can either make the problem worse or the problem better. And so we're going to see both sides of those things this morning. How we respond will ultimately determine whether the church is going to get hurt as the enemy comes or whether the church is going to grow. So we're going to see a great example of responding properly when there is a complaint, where there's this problem that exists, uh, and we're going to see how they deal with it. So let's start Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, says this, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Well, last week we noted that Luke is no longer recording numbers of people getting saved because it's just growing too large. You know, at first it was 3,000 and 5,000. He kept giving us numbers, but now it's just there's a lot of people getting saved. There's probably over 25,000 people now in the early church, and it's just growing to such a point that the numbers aren't being mentioned anymore. And when you have a large group, what that brings is a lot of needs. And a particular need in that culture, maybe not as much in our culture today, because in that culture, the husband was completely responsible for making all the money, for earning everything, for providing everything. Uh, the wives never worked. You know, in our culture, it's different. But uh, in that culture, that was the case. So if the husband dies... The wife is now left in a pretty horrible state because someone now needs to take care of her. Someone now needs to provide for her. So widows in that culture were, you know, those in greatest need because now the man who provided everything is gone and they're left with nothing. And so the early church, they wanted to take care of the needs of the widows, give them the money they need, the clothes they need, the food they need. Uh, and so they had that. Their people were giving to the church specifically to say, hey, we want to take care of the widows that are in our congregation. So there's this problem that exists. The widows need to be taken care of, but we're told that there's an issue. As the widows are supposed to be taken care of, notice what we're told. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. 
So Luke tells us of two different groups. There's the Hebrews and the Hellenists. And the Hellenists have a problem with the Hebrews. The problem is, hey, you guys are neglecting our widows. Now, there's a, some significant differences between both of these groups. They're both Jewish, but there are some differences that I want you to note because it's one of the reasons there's an issue here. The Hebrews were Jews who lived in Israel. They spoke Hebrew and they embraced the Hebrew Jewish culture. Hellenists were Jews who lived somewhere outside of Israel, somewhere in the Roman Empire. Their main language was Greek or the nation that they also uh, were living in, and they adopted the Greek culture. Now, if you remember on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out on Jesus' followers. They're speaking in tongues, and we see that 15 different countries are represented in the group that's there listening. And what do they hear? They hear God being praised in their own language. These people are coming. They're Jewish. They're coming for the Feast of Pentecost. But guess what? They're coming from the country that they live in. They're Hellenist. They don't live in Israel. They live somewhere else. They don't speak Hebrew. They speak something else. They don't hold to the Jewish culture. They hold to the culture that they live in. And so you have Jews that live somewhere else that hold to a different culture. And then you have the Hebrews that they speak Hebrew. They live in Israel. And so with these two groups, you have an issue. You see, the issue was really for most of the Hebrews, they kind of saw themselves as better than the Hellenists. They looked at the Hellenists as compromisers. You guys aren't living in the promised land. You aren't speaking Hebrew. You aren't here with us. You've kind of compromised. You're living in the Greek culture. You've adopted the Greek culture. You're speaking the Greek language. And so they saw them, yeah, you're Jews, but you're not Jews like us. You know, you're, you're not as good as us. We're here in the promised land doing what we're supposed to be doing. And you guys are off somewhere else. So they, they saw themselves as superior to the Hellenists. And the Hellenists looked at the Jews, uh, the Hebrew Jews, and they kind of, you know, sense that. You guys feel that you're superior to us because we're in a different culture, because we speak a different language, because we're not here in the promised land. And so there was a bit of animosity between these two groups because of the feelings that they had towards one another. When I started a church in Scotland, I discovered something very similar when I was over there because we had people who were Scottish get saved and come into our church, and we also had people who were English get saved and come in our church. And if you know any of the history between England and Scotland, you realize that they do not like each other at all. Uh, England has done some pretty brutal things to the Scottish people. So the Scottish people, for the most part, still hate the English. And the English still feel superior, like this is really our island and we run it and we just kind of allow you to be a part of it. And so you have that coming in. You know, you have this group who feels they're more superior. You have this group who doesn't like the other group. And they both get saved and they they come to be a part of the church that we have. But they bring in these feelings of animosity towards one another and the Lord has to kind of work that out in them over time. And so that's what you have with the Hebrews and the Hellenists. There are two groups that already had some problems before they got saved. Now they're part of the church and there's this issue that arises. But I want you to note that there's already probably a natural suspicion. Of course, you're going to try to do something negative against us. You don't like us. You think you're better than us. And so because of some of the feelings that they already had, when this issue arises, it probably got bigger than it really needed to because I'm thinking the Hellenists most likely probably read in a little more than they probably should have because they already had issues with the Hebrew Jews feeling like you guys feel like you're better than us anyway. So their complaint is, you know what? All of our widows are here. And you guys who are Jews, Hebrew Jews, you're neglecting the Greek Jew culture widow. And that's what they're, they're saying. You know, this is the problem. Now, this is a perfect situation for Satan to get in 
to destroy, to bring division, to split up these groups, because here is this issue, and now he's ready to jump all over that. And you know what? He loves to bring division, especially when you have two groups of people who already struggle to get along, who already have issues with one another, who already have some animosity before you know any of these things even took place. Now, it's important to note that it's not suggested that the neglect of these uh, widows was deliberate. The Hebrew Jews, they could have been purposeful. They could have thought, well, our widows are better. They're more significant. We're going to take care of them better. And, you know, you Greek, you know, widows, you're just going to get the leftovers. That could have been their mindset. They could have done that. We're not told that. It could have been just unintentional. The reality is with this amount of people, the logistics involved and all that would have taken place to take care of stuff, you know, some things could have just fallen through the cracks and there could have been some widows that were neglected, not purposely, but just because of the reality of poor administration or poor supervision. Uh, and so that could have been what took place. And, and I bring that up because we all know that Satan can use intentional things that we do to cause conflict. If I purposely hurt you, obviously that's going to bring a conflict in the relationship that we have. But something else to important to understand is Satan can also use unintentional uh, things that we do to bring conflict and bring problems. Any of you who are married, you recognize within your marriage, there's plenty of things that I'm sure that you've done to your spouse that was unintentional, that caused hurt, and that brought conflict. It wasn't purposeful. It wasn't something that you were deliberately trying to do, but whatever you did, you did. And it hurt the other person and conflict arose and Satan was there ready to pounce on that and bring, you know, division within the marriage. And we see the same thing here with the Hellenistic widows uh, versus the Hebrew widows and the things that were going on. And so I'm sure many of the Hellenists assume the worst about the Hebrew Jews. You know, you guys have always thought you were superior to us. You always think you're better. And now you have this opportunity to show it. Look at it. You take care of your own and you neglect ours. And, and so there's this issue now that's there and Satan's there to fuel the fire. And this is why when you're wronged, it's so important to follow the biblical command. The biblical command is when someone wrongs you, you personally go to them in love and you address it. You share with them, you know, what has transpired. And in that point in time, you can find out whether it was intentional or unintentional, but that's kind of more irrelevant. The bottom line is you're doing that to restore the relationship, to bring the relationship back to the place that it once was and to have forgiveness, repentance, and healing within that. Something you shouldn't do is to stay away from the person who did something against you, assume the worst about them, and just think, ah, it'll all just blow over and deal with itself. Just like I mentioned with the weeds. You neglect them, they grow, and they spread. This is something I see so often as a pastor. you got two groups or two individuals, and they have an issue towards one another, or one has an issue towards the other, and they don't address it. They don't come to that person. They don't talk about it. But yet there's resentment. There's these hurt feelings, and it just grows. And they think, you know what? This is just going to blow over. You know, give me a week. Give me a month. Well, in a week, they're worse. In a month, they're even worse. Uh, and, you know, it's something that has to be addressed and dealt with. And I'm sad to see when something really small and insignificant grows to be some huge thing because it was neglected for so long. And Satan definitely is there to cause problems when that happens. And so here is this potentially big problem brewing. And now this is brought to the apostles. They find out what's going on and let's see how they respond to the problem there starting in verse 2. 
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The Hellenistic Jews are ultimately asking the apostles to take over this ministry. Hey, this isn't working, guys. Our Jewish widows are, are being neglected, and so we want you apostles to oversee this to make sure that everything's distributed fairly and that you know these widows are no longer uh, taken advantage of. Now, in response to that request of the apostles taking this over, they say this, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, this term serving tables or speaking of, that's actually where the widows would go. There would be tables with all the resources that they need. They would come to that. They'd get their food. They'd get different things that they had for them. So he's basically saying, it's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and take on overseeing this ministry of taking care of the widows. Now, the first thing I want you to note is that the apostles are not saying we're above serving these widows. Why don't you go appoint some people that aren't as important as us to take care of this unimportant thing? That's not what they're saying at all. You know, Jesus made very clear to them in the time that he was with them when he washed their feet and he helped them recognize, you know, the greatest of you is the one who serves. And so, you know, this wasn't a, oh, we're too good for this type of thing. It was something uh, far more significant. Their choice not to serve the widows personally has has nothing to do with them thinking that kind of service is beneath them. You see, they understand for us to take over this ministry, for us to serve in this capacity, it's going to take a lot of time for us to do it right, for us to make sure that all the widows are evenly uh, given what they need. We're going to have to have a lot of investment in that. And if we do that, it will take away from our ministry to the word and our ministry to prayer. So the response was a matter of priority rather than preference. They understood something very important. We can't do everything. We have priorities. Our priority needs to be the word of God and prayer. And we can't do it all, so we need to make a decision as to what we're going to invest our time in. So their response was more a matter of calling rather than an issue of need. They understood, you know, we're not called to distribute food. We're called to distribute the word of God. And so because of that, we are going to set our priority in that and not put our efforts and time into this other thing. So this is a crucial point in the early church because I want you to think about this for a moment. If the apostles said, you know what, oh wow, there's this big need, we're going to set aside the word and prayer and and teaching people the word and then focusing on that, and we're going to go make sure all these widows' needs are taken care of. The widows' needs would have been taken care of, and they probably would have been taken care of very well. But the problem would have been the other spiritual needs of investing in the word and prayer, that would have been now neglected. And so they had a choice to make. You know, what is it that we're called to do and where should we invest the time that God has given to us? So in their response to the Hellenist Jews, they show, well, we understand our role, we understand our calling, and we're going to make that our priority. And that's why they say in verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, they knew what their role was. They knew what their calling was. Their calling ultimately was to give themselves continually to the word of God and to prayer, to make sure that they were the ones leading the body in those things. And since that was their main role and calling, they wisely made that their priority to say, that is what we're going to focus on. So they chose not to personally take care of the needs of the widows because they realized we can't be everything to the church. 
And at that point in time, everyone was looking to them and, oh, you guys are so amazing and wonderful and you should just run it all. Well, actually, they can't run it all. Uh, and they realized they couldn't run it all. And so they said, you know what, we have to be following the calling and the role that God has given us and allow others to take on this practical need of taking care of the widows. So they had to prioritize their time and they did that and it was very good. So the lesson that they learned is a lesson that I had to learn the hard way when I first started a church in Scotland. It was just me, uh, and so I didn't have help. Uh, and I remember, especially in that first year, you know, like with any church, the needs just keep coming and arising. And, and I'm just thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to do it all because I want all these needs met. Uh, and so I started wearing every possible hat that was there. I was teaching. I was leading worship. I was greeting. I was doing the men's ministry. I did youth. I even helped out with the kids. I was leading outreach. You know, I just kept, you know, I was, you know, doing a lot of practical stuff and I was thinking, well, if there's a need, I'm going to try to meet the need. And soon I found out two things. One, I was getting burnt out really quick. And the other was I wasn't doing any ministry very effectively because I was spread too thin. I was trying to do so much that I really wasn't investing any quality time in any one particular ministry. And so I was ineffective in all of them. And the Lord just said, you know what? You just need to do what I've called you to do. Step away from these other ministries and just trust me to raise up people to do them. Trust me to take care of them. And you just do what I've called you to do. And so I just started focusing my time on teaching, on prayer, on discipleship, and just said, all right, Lord, I'm going to leave these other ministries to you. And it wasn't instantaneous, and it was a struggle for a little bit to see certain ministries not happening and just saying, all right, Lord, you got this. But you know what? He raised up people to take over those things, uh, and it was something that was very healthy and good for the church church. Uh, and it was good for me to realize, you know what, I can't do it all. And I think these disciples are very wise right off the bat, recognizing that reality. See, in ministry, God wants sharpshooters, not shotgun blasters. You see, a sharpshooter is a person that has kind of the, the sniper rifle with the this huge scope and they're zeroed in and they hit their target every time. The, the shotgun blaster is that person who just kind of, you know, you know, hoping that, you know, one of the pellets is going to hopefully hit the target. And in ministry, you have that where you're either really focused on the calling that God's given you and you're going to hit the target and do what he's called you to do every time because that is your focus. That is where you're, you're headed. Or you're kind of like the shotgun person, which is like my first year in ministry, which is I'm just going to do everything I can. And I hope that something is effective and hits the target that God is calling me to do. And when you're the shotgun blaster, it tears you up and it's something that is not effective. So I encourage you, be the person who understands what you're called to do and then do it with all your ability, with all your might and serve the Lord in it. You know, I think an important scripture to understand in light of all of this and in light especially of the apostles' recognition of their calling is Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 and 12. It says this, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In these verses, we're told of five different leadership roles that Christ gave to the church specifically to help run the church. We have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Now, all these leadership roles have a different function ultimately, but their their purpose is pretty much the same, and that is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so God gave these five different roles, pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and their goal is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Now, this word translated equip means to prepare someone or something fully to provide what is needed to accomplish a specific purpose. And so the Lord says here, I'm giving you these five leadership roles to equip, to prepare the body of Christ for ministry. But I want you to note that who are those being equipping? We're told to equip the saints. Now, we've heard this word saint and people kind of have elevated this to some super spiritual Christian, but the reality is that's not what the actual word means. It's just someone who's set apart for God, which is all of us. And so it's not, you know, the, you know, especially the Catholic Church has kind of elevated that term, but, you know, biblically that term just means you're separated under God. Well, that happens when you accept him. So all of us are saints. So this is speaking of believers. So these five roles, they're equipping believers in the church to do what? The work of ministry. What? Because so often, I know growing up, it was like, well, who does the work of ministry? The pastors, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers. Those people are the staff, and they do the ministry, and we come and they minister to us, and, and that's how it works, right? Well, no, that's not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern is that fivefold leadership equips the people who are coming to do the work of ministry. See, the apostles recognize our role is a role of equipping. We're going to stay with the word. We're to stay with prayer. We're to equip you guys to do the work of ministry. You know, the second part of our vision here at Cross Connection is to equip the save. And I realize that's one of my main roles as a pastor is to equip you so that you can do the ministry that God has called you to do. And two of the most important things to use in order to equip people is God's word and prayer. You got to know the word of God if you're going to be used by God. You got to understand it. You got to grow in it. And prayer is essential for God to really work through us and, and do great things in us. And so the apostles understood their main role and they focused on that. And, and I think it's important to understand if you want to do, especially teaching well, you need to invest a good amount of time into preparing that. You know, any of you who have taught something know that in order to teach something, you got to have a good understanding of what you're teaching. If you ever got up not having a good understanding of what you're teaching, you realize how badly that goes very quickly. The only way you can understand that subject you are teaching is if you put a lot of time and effort into it. You know, when I was in Bible college, I had the privilege of being taught by many great teachers. And, and one of the things that I would do is after class, I'd come and I'd talk with these teachers and I'd ask them, what is it you do in preparation for your teaching? I wanted to learn. I wanted to grow. I felt called to teach. And so I wanted to learn from these guys. I look, you're a great teacher. What is it you're doing to prepare yourself for that? And even when I got out of Bible college and I would meet guys that I felt, you know, I really like your teaching style. What is it you're doing to prepare? And you find that each person has a little bit of a a different method and, and different ways that they approach things. But you know what? I saw one big common theme with every guy that was a good teacher, and I also saw a common theme with guys who weren't, and that was the amount of time that they put into preparation. The people that I saw were great teachers. I listened to the time that they invested, and it was a lot. And then guys who I didn't really think were good teachers, and sometimes I'd ask them, and, and they didn't really invest much time in preparing. And those things go hand in hand. You prepare well, and you invest a lot of time in it, you're going to have, uh, you'll be a much more efficient teacher. You know, I found personally for myself that eight to ten hours for each teaching that I do is kind of the minimum that I need to be really prepared to teach what I, the way I feel the Lord needs me to. And so, you know, it takes time. You know, just two teachings a week is 20 hours in itself. And so, you know, this is something that if you're called to teaching the Word of God, you need to invest a lot of time in that. And, you know, the same is true with prayer. 
I remember in Bible college, you know, you have to read a lot of books about prayer. You get a lot of teaching about prayer, but nothing substitutes praying. You know, you can hear a lot of things about it and be like, oh, that's so great. Now I really know. Let's just go. But praying is the real thing that draws you into a grasp of prayer like you never would get from reading about other people who pray, but doing it yourself. And I remember between my second and third semester at Bible college, I stayed there. I worked landscaping to help pay for my tuition. And a good friend of mine who had just graduated and he was working that summer as well, um, he started a prayer meeting uh, Monday to thir- uh, Friday every, you know, those nights. And so we were doing that together. And, you know, the summer ended and he said, you know what, will you take over the prayer meeting for this next semester of students? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. That'd be great. And so the Bible college administrator says, you know, are you going to be doing this? I want to put it in the schedule so students know that they can go to this if they want to. And she said, when are you going to do it? And I said, every night thinking Monday to Friday, like we've been doing it. Uh, and so the schedule comes out, and it is every night, Monday to Sunday. Uh, and so my first thought was, my parents live right now 45 minutes away, right near the ocean. I want my weekends free. I want to leave this campus, and I want to go. So I was about to walk into the office and say, oh, no, no, we've made a mistake. It's Monday to Friday nights, not Monday to Sunday. I'm not going to do every single night. And I felt the Lord just clearly say, no, I want you to do each night. And you know, there were plenty of nights, especially on the weekends, where I didn't feel like going and leading that prayer meeting. But I will say this, I never, at the end of praying, ever felt like, oh, I shouldn't have done this. I wasted my time. You know, and I was faithful to do it, and the Lord always blessed. But during, I did that for two semesters in a row, so a whole year, every single night, leading a prayer meeting. And I grew so much in my grasp of prayer, my understanding of prayer, the power of prayer, that I never could have gotten just through reading books or hearing teachings. Uh, And I say all that to say, you know what, if you really want to be a person of prayer, you got to do it. You can't just read about it, hear about it. You actually have to put it into practice and watch what the Lord will do in you and through you as you take that time to invest in prayer. So if you want to be effective in teaching, you want to be effective in prayer, it takes time. The disciples and the apostles, they recognize this and they say, you know what, we are going to invest our time, prioritize our time, and give that to the word and to prayer. We're not going to take away from that and go meet the needs of these widows. Now they also realize, hey, these widows have needs. And we're not just going to say, well, forget you widows. We're going to realize there's an issue here. There's a need here. But we feel that we are not the ones called to meet the need. But notice what they do because they realize, hey, we're not called to it, but we're going to make sure that someone else does. But I want to throw out before we look at who meets the need is something we need to recognize. If Satan can't get you into sin, if he can't hinder you with sin, one thing that he will do is distract you with something good. I've seen that so often in my own Christian life. You know what? He's like, I'm hammering you with some sin issues and you're resisting them. Well, good for you. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring something good that you'll do, but then you won't do what you really should prioritize and do. You know what? I grow up, my dad's a pastor. I have a lot of people that I know who are pastors. One area that I see with pastors a lot, and I'm praying that I don't become this person, is they prioritize ministry over their family. They neglect their family. They neglect investing in their family because something good is there. Because it is good. Oh, I'm pouring into people. I'm going to prayer meetings. I'm teaching the Bible. I'm studying. And it's like, you know what? It's okay if I neglect my family. It's okay if I neglect the responsibility that God has given me to invest in my wife and my kids. And I see a lot of pastors doing that. They're neglecting it, ultimately a priority that they should have. Why? Because something good is drawing them away from that and it's hindering them to do what they've called to do. I've seen this in my own personal walk with the Lord, even in just time with God. You know what? I'm serving you, Lord. I'm doing something for you, and so it's okay that I neglect time with you. 
Maybe you've seen that in your own life of, hey, I'm serving him. You know, I don't need to read the Bible and spend time with him because I don't have time for that because I'm out here doing this for him and that for him. And, and he'll understand because I'm doing these things for him. But we need to recognize the priority should be, and what God wants first and foremost, is time with us, not us doing things for him. That's a byproduct of time with him. And so let's make sure we get our priorities straight because I've discovered you can't effectively minister for God if you're not first taking time to spend with him. And so that should be priority number one, time with God, then time with family, then time with the people that God has called us to minister to. And if we keep those priorities, we'll be in good shape. But understand, Satan oftentimes will try to throw good things at us to distract us from things that ultimately we should be doing. And so he's clever, and he tries different things to try to get in and destroy the relationships that we have. So now we have the response. What are the apostles going to do? How are they going to solve this problem? Well, verse 3 tells us this. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. The apostles know the widows, they need to be taken care of. We are not called to take care of this. So we need to find people, not just any random person, who can do this ministry and do it well. And so they gave some specific qualifications. They go to the congregation and they say, here, you guys go and you find seven guys. But not just any seven guys. There's three qualifications that we want to make sure each of these seven guys have. First, they have to be of good reputation. A good reputation among the believers. And this is something obviously that's very important. People had to see through their actions and their words that they were a godly man. So if someone said, well, how about so-and-so? Well, actually, I know so-and-so, and I know the sin that so-and-so is involved in right now. So right away, you do not have a good reputation among the people. I mean, when they raise someone up and people think, him? You know, obviously, that's a problem. So it's like, when you raise people up and say, we're going to say, this guy should be it. Well, there should be a good reputation where everyone says, yeah, this is a godly man in the way in which he acts, in the way in which he speaks, and we would recommend him to this role. The second and third qualification is that they would be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, the idea of being full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom is that they would both be spiritually minded and also practically minded. And sometimes this can be a hard combination to find. You'll find people who are very wise practically, especially in business and things, but really aren't very spiritually minded. And sometimes you find people who are spiritually minded, but, you know, they're pretty practically foolish. So um, to have both of those things are important because, remember, this is a practical leadership role. There's a lot of logistics involved, and they need to make sure that they have the wisdom so that everyone gets the needs taken care of that they should get taken care of. So they said, hey, we're going to throw this out. You guys go and see if you can find seven men who fit this um, thing. But I want you to notice with all three of these qualifications, notice the focus is on the character of the men, not their ability. Actually, I want you to think about this. When you look at the role of pastor, elder, or deacon in the Bible, every single role except for one is focused on character. There's only one role that's focused on ability, and that's the ability to teach the Bible. Every other focus is on character. And I think that's something that we sorely miss in the church world today, because I look at some guys who are appointed into leadership and ministry, and it has all to do with their ability, and they've totally missed, well, wait a second, this is not a man of character. And there's huge problems that come when you give a guy a role in the church who's not a man of character just based on his ability. And there's really only one ability the Bible says that's essential if you're going to be in the pastoral role, and that is the ability to teach. And so here, once again, hey, the focus is their character. 
What is the character of these men right? If they're godly in character, then that's the kind of men that we want to put in leadership. Warren Wiersbe said, character is what you are when no one is watching but God. You know, I like that definition because we can put on great shows in front of people, especially here at church. We can make ourselves seem so much more spiritual than we are. But when no one's watching, what is it that you watch? When no one's watching, what is it that you do? When no one's watching, what is, how do you conduct yourself? You see, that is really where our character is. When only God sees, that's the true character of an individual. So the apostles tell the people, seek out seven men with these specific qualifications. And we're not really actually told why they choose seven men. A practical reason might be for every day of the week, we can have someone overseeing this. Uh, but Or maybe they just felt, you know, seven is plenty. But they, they say, pick seven men, pick these three qualifications. Now verses five and six, let's see what happens. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicor, Taman, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So the congregation found seven men who met these three qualifications that the apostles put forward, and the apostles lay hands on them, pray for them, and appoint them to the ministry for these widows. Now, something I think very important to note is that all seven names are Greek. This is important because, remember, what's the battle here? The battle is between the Hebrew Jews versus the Hellenists who are from the Greek culture. They go out and they pick, which is most likely seven Hellenists, seven Hellenist men who represent the group that's been, you know, hurt, the group that's been bringing this complaint. Now, they could have easily thrown out, you know, half and half or whatever, but I think this is important because they're showing love, saying, you know what, you're the group that's been hurt, you're the group that's been neglected, and so we're going to allow you to be the guys to fully run this, and you know what we're going to trust you to do? We're going to trust you to take care of our Hebrew widows the way that you wanted us to take care of your Hellenist widows. And so there's this there's trust and this love to ultimately say, a way in which we want to repair the hurt is to say we're going to establish and appoint you guys and give you this role. Uh, and I think that's a significant thing that they do. Now, Stephen is the first name here. Uh, he's a character that's very significant in the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 7, uh, which we'll be looking at next week. But then that's the end for him, and you'll see why. Philip, after that, is another person that we see throughout the book of Acts. He's very significant. But the other five guys, we just have them mentioned here. We hear nothing of them. And that shouldn't be something that we're surprised with because we don't really hear much about the apostles either besides Peter, James, John, and Paul. So, um, you know, that's just something Acts obviously doesn't cover every little thing that transpired. Uh, and so... Some people wonder, you know, why did the apostles lay hands on these seven men, pray for them? This is just a practical ministry. I mean, all they're doing is giving food and, and clothing and, and practical stuff to the widow. So, so why do they need to pray for them? This isn't spiritual. This is practical. Well, I think something very important to understand is that practical service is spiritual service. You know, the same Greek word is used in both distribution in 6.1, and ministry in 6.4, both speaking of service. Now, when we think, oh, distribution, that's practical. Oh, ministry, that's spiritual. Well, the reality is both are spiritual. The ministry of the word and prayer, yes, we think of that as spiritual, which it is, but doing practical service within the body of Christ, that's still a spiritual thing. When you're doing it unto the Lord and meeting people's practical needs, that's something that is significant, that's something that's important, and that's something that you need the Lord to empower you to do effectively. 
In 1 Timothy, Paul gives us the qualifications for pastors and for elders. And within those qualifications, it's really focused on taking care of the spiritual needs of the congregation. And then he goes on to give us the qualifications for the deacons. And the deacons, really, their role is to take care of the practical needs of the congregation. The apostles realize, you know what, we are in the role of taking care of the spiritual needs of the people. And these seven men right here are really the first deacons appointed into the church. We're now, they're appointed into a role of taking care of the practical needs of the church. Considering all that could have gone wrong when Satan attacks, when you have these two groups coming against each other, you know, everyone I think involved deserves much credit. The Hellenists, they did the right thing. They saw a need, a problem, and they brought that complaint to the apostles in order for the the need to be met. Uh, And I think that's a good example to us. You know, if you see a problem or need in our church, don't just complain about it. Don't just go around gossiping about it. You know, bring that to me. Bring that to Lee or Ray or Colson. You know, share it with us because we want to know what's going on because ultimately we want to seek to meet the need or maybe appoint someone else to meet the need. But the reality is we don't just want to let it keep going or ignore it. You know, there's things that maybe you see that we don't or, you know, maybe we've already seen it and we can explain what we're doing. But at the end of the day, feel free to come and share, you know, problems, needs, complaints, uh, because we want to address those. You know, also the Hebrews, I think, did the right thing. They show love, allowing these seven men who were chosen to be Hellenists to say, you know what, we're willing to allow you guys to take on this and to take care of our widows, and we're just going to show you love, and we might have intentionally hurt you, we might have unintentionally hurt you, but regardless, we're doing what we can to restore the relationship back to the way it needs to be. And I think that's a great example to us. If we do something intentionally or unintentionally, we need to be doing all we can to restore the relationship, all we can to demonstrate love, because, hey, we're the ones who are guilty of doing it, and we need to do all we can to bring that relationship back to the way that it was. The seven men who cho- were chosen, I think they did the right thing. Ultimately, they accept the call. Hey, we're willing to step up and we're willing to serve in this capacity. And they could even say, ah, I don't want the headache of that. I don't want to be a part of this. This is too political, you know, whatever. They were willing to step up and they were willing to serve and they were willing to invest, which is a great example when, you know, you're called into something, the Lord gives you a ministry, be willing to meet the need, be willing to step forward uh, and give your time and serve in that. And the apostles did the right thing. They recognized, you know what, we have a, a calling that we're not going to be distracted by. We have a priority that we need to focus on. We're going to help meet the needs of these uh, widows, but we're not going to do it ourselves. We're going to stay focused on the word and prayer. And that's another good example to us. Make sure you have your right priorities. Make sure you don't get distracted even by good things like ministering to widows. Know what you're called to do and invest in it. And notice the result of all these things that happened. The result could have been, you know, and there was a huge division and all these problems. But verse 7 tells us the, the positive result. Then the word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Because this situation was handled quickly, wisely, lovingly, What could have been disastrous, what could have been an area where Satan got in and brought huge division was something that the Lord was now able to use. And once again, we see a growth in the church. And also, I love the end, many priests, these devout Jews, part of Judaism, are are getting saved and the Lord's working. Uh, And so, you know, this is something that we need to understand of, hey, we play a part in this. 
You know, how we respond even to conflict and different things is a big impact as to whether or not Satan's going to get the inroad or God's going to get the inroad. And so let's understand that, you know, obviously the Lord wants us to respond as we see here. Satan's efforts once again are thwarted. And instead of the church being destroyed, the church being hurt, the church being hindered, the church grows. Uh, and so once again, that's an encouraging thing for us. But as we're going to see, he's not going to stop. His greatest, most severe thing yet is going to happen as we look in the next chapter, which we'll see next week. Well, I have some good news to share with you, and I think it goes well with uh, what we looked at this morning with hopefully being able to invest your time in what God has called you to do. Uh, those of you who've been coming on Thursday nights know that I've asked for prayer to find a part-time job. The reason that I was even able to get to that place is because, you know, Jenny and I, for, you know, since we were in Scotland, have had hundreds of people that we have praying for us and we share what the Lord's doing. And, uh, and many of those people supported us financially in Scotland. And a few months ago, I just felt the Lord, you know, leading me to just throw it out to some of them to say, you know what, would you consider supporting supporting me for the rest of the year uh, so that I could, you know, put more time into the church and less time into another job. Uh, and the initial response was enough money that I could look for a part-time job. And that's why uh, on Thursday night, I threw out that prayer request. But, you know, trying to find a part-time job that met, you know, the time needs that I have. Most of them are evenings and weekends, which wasn't what I needed. Uh, and so we just kept praying. And uh, and as we were praying, another person says, you know what, we're going to support you monthly. Another person, we're going to support you monthly. And then all of a sudden, I have a tax guy who does our taxes for free, but he doesn't do them until after the tax season's over. So we didn't know how much taxes we would get back. And we got back a few thousand dollars more than we thought we would. Uh, and so the Lord just keeps, you know, giving us, you know, more provision. And then, you know, a couple more people said, you know what, we'll support you monthly. And so now we went from, you know what, we need a part-time job to the point of, you know, we can go the rest of the year full-time investing in the church. And so um, Wednesday is going to be my last day uh, at the pest control company. Uh, and then after that, I'm going to be focusing full-time with the church. And, you know, I'm excited with that, even as we looked at tonight, you know, I want to, or tonight, this morning, uh, just with uh, investing all my efforts into the church. And, you know, I'm going to be a lot more available. Uh, obviously, you know, up to this point, uh, my availability was a lot less. So uh, we want to invest in you a lot more. I'm going to be putting a lot more time into discipleship and training. Uh, and so uh, we're going to even be doing more evangelism things as well. But uh, feel free to uh, take advantage of my availability. I want to get with you guys more. Uh, and especially with you men, I'm going to put a lot more time into meeting with you. Uh, and so um, I'm excited about it. So, um, you know, one of the things I'm also passionate about is missions. And part of our vision is to send the equipped. And I'm excited for you guys just to get to hear. Many of you already know Savannah uh, is about to depart uh, and she's going to be in Kenya. But I want to have her come uh, and share a little bit about what she's doing. Uh, and then we're going to take some time just to pray for her uh, and what the Lord's going to be doing in her. So uh, why don't you come on up uh, and let us know uh, what the Lord's doing and how we can pray. Hello. All right. Well, as most of you all know, my name is Savannah, and um, I'm going to be going to Rongai, Kenya for the next three months. I got last year, I went through this program with this ministry called Pottersfield, and I had some training in Guatemala and then went there six months as an intern. 
And so we would go and we would teach the Bible in four different schools. And they actually started a school, kindergarten through third grade now, and um, just to help the kids with getting a better education and then also to give them a good foundation on God's Word. Because although a lot of the Kenyans, a big percentage would be Christian, there's a lot of just false doctrines that have kind of crept in as far as um, not knowing you need a relationship with the Lord and kind of it's, it's more generated um, geared towards getting wealth or just on the gifts, like seeing these crazy things versus who Jesus is and how he loves them and how he wants that relationship with them. So a lot of what we do is just going through the Bible, talk about, how personal he is and how he wants to be their God and not just something they do or they see to hopefully get money. And so that was a big blessing for me because since I was 10, I I had wanted to do missions. Like, And I knew God was calling me to Africa. So for 12 years, I'd pray and look at the globe and look up countries and just um, ask, God to send me when he wanted me to. And so getting to go there, I was so nervous that it wouldn't be what it was like in my head. And it, and it wasn't, but it was like way better because God had put that desire in my heart and because it was the fruit of so many years of prayer and so many dreams and so many just, okay, God, what you want me to do? And so... This summer, I'll be going and helping oversee the next group of interns that come in. The family, the missionary family we supported there kind of have a time each year to come back to America, visit doctors, visit family, visit those who are help supporting them, and just get rest because they're running this school. And then we also run this feeding program with over 300 kids. And then they run sponsoring programs with, I think, like, 50 high schoolers as far as finding them and help sponsoring them for high school and then discipling them because something that's very important there is not just meeting the physical needs but making sure every kid that comes we know how their family situation is and how their financial situation is and if they're going to school and if they have food and so it's just it's full-time work and so they just get to go home and just spend time with family. And so I'll be help filling in for them and just um, teaching in the school. I'll be teaching literature and, um, and phonics and English and tutoring. But mostly I, I think I'll be helping just the interns just because for a lot of them it's the first time away from their home for that long. And they're all 19 and 20. And so I just... Um, I'm so excited to see what God's going to do because there's something so amazing about just not knowing, I guess, and having to depend on Him and having to trust on Him and every day being like, okay, God, this has to be you because I'm in a different country with a different culture, with they speak a different language, and I need you. I need your help. I need you to help me teach this class that... I need you to help me, give me wisdom with, um, there's going to be five interns, and help me um, point them to you when I don't know how to handle the situation. So 
I really just ask that that y'all would come alongside me in prayer, like, because I know last year our team could see a difference in the day that we gave to prayer and not. And I would have people tell me that they were praying for me, and that I know makes a difference because we we are all sinners. And it can be very humbling living with people and serving with people. And Satan is so quick, so quick just with weariness or fear can be a big thing, um, just our inadequacy. And so I do just ask that y'all would come and just pray. Pray that, you know, that we would surrender all to the Lord. Pray that. Each day we'd be filled with His Holy Spirit and be led by Him because it's easy to just like here to get comfortable. And the last thing I want to do is offer the kids myself and not Jesus or point to them to look at this American who in their head is so wealthy instead of saying, no, look at Jesus who loves you. Because the hardest thing is, is all of us, all the interns, we're going to leave and all these kids we're loving on, we're going to have to be another person that leaves them. And if they don't have that relationship with Christ, then all of those, a lot of them deal with neglect and they deal with being abandoned. So all those feelings come up with them. So our big thing is to make sure that they are founded in God's love. And so that we just go in each day pushing them to Jesus and not to filling up our, our desire for hugs and cuddles. Um, I really just pray that you give me wisdom. Um, last year I went as an intern, and since this year I'm overseeing, I, I won't have as much access to the family because they're going to be in America, and we have an hour difference, and they're going to be with family. So I know there's going to be situations I'm not going to know how to deal with, whether with the kids and something popping up or even just with the interns we'll be living with. Um, and so I just ask that you just pray that God just gives us wisdom, that just like today, like he just gives us a plan and that He there is no um, disunity, whether it's with Kenyans or just Americans. And we're used to having things our way. And it can be hard when we have to remember about esteeming others, especially when it's been a couple months and you feel like you've done that enough. So just that God would just give peace and unity in our group. Um, there's been a lot of health issues just with um, both Kenyans and Americans. It's rainy season, so everyone's getting sick. Everyone's getting cold. I'm bringing a lot of cold medicine, and even the parents have sent, some parents have sent me cold medicine for their kids because you do get a lot of allergies, and um, there's a lot of parasites you can get quickly. But that that can be... Where there's medicine for that, but it does knock you out for a day. So just that we'd we wouldn't get too sick, um, and just that God would be glorified, just in the school and our words and our actions and all that we do, and of course for salvation for the kids. I mean that's our main thing. We want Romans 10 is one of my favorite chapters, and I love how it talks about. You know, how can they believe if they haven't heard? And how can they hear if someone doesn't say? And how can someone say if they're not sent? So I know God has sent me again, and I know he's sending these interns just to go and share his love. And so I do just, 
I'm so excited, but I do just tell you, I need prayer. I need y'all's prayer, and um, and I know God desires to work. We just being becoming that vessel that He can use is is a lot um, often of dying of ourselves and just letting Him take over. So. I'm very excited. I'll be probably posting a lot of pictures because they're all so cute. And I thank you all so much. So, thank you. Can you stand with Okay. Well, just like we saw today with just uh, laying on of hands in prayer, uh, Colson and Lee, uh, where's Lee? I don't know. Why don't we have the whole Crabtree family come on up? We're just going to lay hands on... Savannah, and I'm just going to leave it open for a little bit for anyone here who wants to pray, and then uh, we'll spend some time praying. But we just want to lift up the request that she had and um, just pray the Lord would bless. So if you want to pray for her, please do. Father, we just thank you so much for, for the desire and the passion you put in Savannah's heart. Lord. We know that from you. It's not natural for us to get come out of our comfort zone and, and go into a country and, and do things that just can be very intimidating. The Lord, we know that it's your desire to use her in an awesome way. We pray for protection. Pray for the head of protection. We wrap down here on the team while they're there, Lord. I pray for that you watch over and keep them well, keep them healthy. And Lord, those that I pray these children that come into her life, Lord, that they you soften their hearts so that when she shares the love of Christ with them, they respond to it. 